We're in the book of James. You can turn to James 4. James has been asking these kind of rhetorical questions. Last week, who's wise? And then he kind of describes, here's a fool and here's a wise guy. This week, here's how James begins. Here's the question he asks. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why are you fighting? <laughs> what a great question. Any parents in here? Is there anything harder than being a parent? I don't think so. Man, it's like you outsource your emotional health to these small humans who have not had their brains developed correctly. And now all of your emotional, your joy is now outsourced to them that they have this control over you. are like, ah, yeah, right? It's crazy. So I have five kids. They're great, mostly. But there will be these moments where I'll begin to hear fighting, quarreling, right? And then one of my kids will come running into me. And when they come running into me, they'll begin to try to tell me what happened, right? <laughs> Hold on. Time out. Stop, stop, stop. Breathe. <sighs> what happened to you? She, 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 she hit me, right? So then you go find the hitter. You say, why did you hit your sister? I know the next two words. In 19 years, it has been the exact same two words. Why did you hit your sister? Here they go. Because she, right? And then whatever it is. I have never had one of my kids say, when I've asked them, why'd you hit your sister? They say, mm, because I'm a sinner. <laughs> yeah, good answer. Because I'm hot-headed? Right. Because I'm a jerk? Yes. Because I'm like you, dad? True. Yeah. <laughs> when they say that, I'll be like, free car for you. It might be a Volkswagen, but it's free. Because she... Most adults never grow out of that attitude. Why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? Because he, because she. We mostly don't grow out of that. So James here, brilliantly, is going to say, hold on. He's going to diagnose the problem and then he's going to solve it. And I'll tell you, I don't know of a better question to ask yourself and a better answer to get than this one. Because fighting is destructive. I'm reading a book right now called Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking. And this book, it's like you can measure and come up with a way of figuring pretty much anything out about humans. It's a pretty brilliant book. And there's this one professor who says, I can tell if a marriage is going to work or not by one metric. He goes, I have not had it fail yet. He goes, it's super simple. You take 
how often you are intimate and you subtract from it how often you fight. If it's a negative, your marriage is doomed. He says, I've never had that fail. Fighting, fighting matters. You gotta solve this one. So James is gonna try to process through here. Here's why, and here's how you solve it, okay? So, this is what he says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see what he's saying? It's a you problem. Fighting is not because she, fighting is a you problem. 11 times, you, 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 you. Fighting's a you problem. Because you are always on your mind. Correct? No one talks to you more than you. I don't care if your wife is a faucet, you cannot shut up. You still talk to yourself more. You win. Fighting quarrels, they're a you problem. So he uses these words. You got this passion, you have this desire, you have this coveting, and they're working in you in such a way that leads you to problems. And you can just kind of take all those words and you could squish them together and just say, it's because there's a disquieted discontentment inside of you and that angsty thing inside of you leads to these problems, fights and to quarrels. So you problem. And there's one word in here that I think explains it the best. It's this Greek word. If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you've heard it. It's epithemeo. It's a brilliant word. It means this, overdrive. That there's something, some passion, some desire that maybe it's actually a good desire. But this passion or desire, something's happened to it and it's supercharged and it's taken this place in your life that now it's actually driving you. You're a slave to it. It becomes your precious. It becomes what's most important to you. It could be your reputation. And if it's threatened, fight. It can be your status. And if it's threatened, it's fight. It can be a dream you have. And if anyone threatens that dream, you're going to fight. It could be money. You go down the list. There's a, could be a good thing, but it's got into overdrive. And because it's in overdrive, look out, it drives you. It's a you problem. Why do you fight? Not because she, because me. It's a me problem. And then he expands on it. He says this fighting, this quarreling, this, this overdrive It becomes a God problem. Look at verse four. You adulterous people. James, tell us what you really think. How'd you like to have him as a preacher, man? This guy is so awesome. You adulterous people. Do you not know 
that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James says, you got this you problem in you, but it's really an adultery problem with God. Because here's what happens. When you take some good thing, it could be a good thing, and it goes into epithumeo overdrive, it actually takes the place in your life that God deserves. It becomes your God. It's your functional God. You live to serve. You live to make that God awesome. So you've committed adultery. And this is just so, to me, it's so brilliant because I think personally that what James is doing here is this. When you do that, you make God your enemy. Like the only way that you can begin to replace God with something else is you have to assassinate God's character in your own mind. You have to make God less. He has to change. You have to assassinate his character. So I think James is actually reflecting back on the Bible because that's what you see. You look in James or in Genesis chapter three, the very first sin, what happens? How does Satan get Eve to eat that apple? Does Satan say, hey, God doesn't love you? No, because she's living in this beautiful place that God had created for her. She knew about God's love. He didn't say, hey, God doesn't exist, so do whatever you want. Because they walked and talked with God in the cool of the garden. Not God's existence, not God's love. Here's the challenge. He says, God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. Your eyes will be opened. God's holding out on you. God's a fun hater. He knows if you could just eat of that fruit, life would, be, life would be awesome and brilliant. And he's not letting you eat of it. He assassinates the goodness of God. God isn't good. It's the same thing he does today. Following God will be boring. Rebellion is exciting. Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go everywhere else. If you truly give your heart over to God, if you truly decide to follow God, it's going to be miserable. You'll have no friends. You'll have no fun. It'll be boring, right? It's the same thing. God's not good. He doesn't have your best in mind. No way. No way. It'll kill you. Before, you can freely replace God with some other overdrive. You have to assassinate God. He can't be good anymore. It's what David learned. So David, hugely blessed by God. But one day he's up on his rooftop and he sees a woman and he wants that woman. He wants that fruit. He wants it. So he goes ahead and takes it, gets in trouble for it, has to kill the husband, Uriah, has to lie about it, all kinds of problems, gets confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he writes a psalm about that sin, that situation. This is what he writes. It's really a fascinating psalm, Psalm 51. 
Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know I blew it. I committed adultery. I murdered this guy. I'm a blow it case. But look what he says next. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You read that and you're like, well, what about Uriah, man? He's in a grave. What about Bathsheba? You committed adultery with her. Wow. Here's what David knew. Before I could commit that act of physical adultery, I had to commit spiritual adultery. God couldn't be good anymore. Before a believer can sin freely, you have to assassinate God's character. Either he stops being holy, which means this, he doesn't care if you sin. God just wants me happy. This situation doesn't make me happy. Therefore, I'm going to go do what I want. My marriage doesn't make me happy. God wouldn't want me in an unhappy marriage, so I'm going to go commit adultery with her, with him. Okay, God's holiness gets assassinated. Or Genesis 3, God's goodness gets assassinated. God's holding out on me. Happens all the time. Happens to our young people all the time. Right? Following God is boring. What's exciting is going out and getting drunk and waking up in a pile of your own puke. Man, it's awesome. And it works so good because the enemy is really good at it. It happens to adults where we have this subtle feeling that if we really gave our lives over completely and wholly to God, it would be miserable that he would make us go be missionaries in Cambodia and eat bugs. There's no toilet paper. And it has super slow Wi-Fi. It would be hell. <laughs> right? That's the subtle assassination of the goodness of God. And that has to happen. We become enemies with God. Well, why does that lead to fighting then? Here's why. If God no longer is the source of what's good, the source of life, the source of joy, the source of pleasure, if God's not, that's been taken out, you have some epithumeo, some new thing up on top that's really governing your life. And if you're honest, we have a lot of those. Okay, when life isn't good, when life is miserable, who do you blame? If you think some circumstance or some person will make you happy and be it, and you're not happy, who do you then blame? The people or the circumstances in your life, right? And if you're looking for faults in people and circumstances, guess what you will find? Faults, problems. So a man gets married and has kids and has a house and a job, but there's this unrest, this discontented soul in him. So who does he blame? The people and the circumstances around him. If my wife was just, fill in the blank, then I would be happy. If she would just stop, if she would just start, if she looked like this, then I'd be happy. If my house was bigger, I'd be happy. If my boss wasn't such a jerk, I'd be happy. If my friends weren't such losers, I'd be happy. Right? You can always find a problem if you begin to base your happiness on people and circumstances, and it'll be a fight. It is a recipe for resentment and bitterness and anger and quarreling and fighting because your soul is so twisted up. 
It's perfect. It's right here. So what do you do? And your prayers actually become twisted. Do you notice that? You pray, but you're asking the wrong prayer so God doesn't give it to you. Now what you're doing, you're actually asking God to bless your overdrive, your epithemeo. Give me a bigger house. Give me a better wife. Give me a better husband. Whatever it is. You're actually asking God to bless the thing that has displaced God. So God's like, I'm not giving that to you. That won't make you happy. No. So what do you do? Verse six. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What do you do? You repent. You repent. That's what this is all is. This is a repentance problem. And if you read this in the Greek, which isn't fun, there are 10 imperatives. It's almost like James is copying the 10. Here are my 10 commandments of repentance. So submit yourself, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Stop laughing and humble yourself. It's like his 10 commandments. And you could go through each one of these, they're brilliant, but that's a lot of time. So I think you can take these and you can group them into three ideas of what it looks like to repent when you know, man, my life is out of order. I got a discontented soul. I have an epithumeo that's driving me to quarreling and fighting and I don't like it. Well, here's what you do. Number one, you repent about the way you see God. If it's a character assassination, God's goodness or God's holiness, you gotta change your mind about God. So James says, verse four, when you've done this, when you've gone to epithumeo, you've broke relationship with God. You've committed adultery on him. But what does verse six say? But he gives more grace. How brilliant is that? I would think, but he gives you divorce papers. He's done with you. What does James instantly come back with? Oh, you don't know how good God is. You'll stray, you'll run, you'll betray, you'll do whatever you're gonna do, but God will give you more and more grace. God is better than we can ever imagine. We don't even have a category for how good God is because everything that we know is so flawed and broken from sin. We don't have a category for how good God is. And I think this adultery metaphor, James is actually reading the Old Testament because it's all through the Old Testament. And maybe he had just read the book of Hosea. You guys know the story of Hosea? Oh, it's so brilliant. Hosea is this godly Jewish prophet who has said, I am wholly given to God. I'm gonna preach his message. And then God says this to Hosea. Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer the prostitute. And Hosea is like, Gomer the Protestant? 
Because I can do that. No? Gomer the prostitute. Oh, oh no. How's that going to work, God? Like, Hanukkah's coming up next week. How do I introduce her to my family? What do I say she did for her whole life? Like, what do I say I met her? It could get really, really funny here, God. What will she wear? And he marries her. And they have a kid. And all their friends knew something was wrong in the relationship when they had friend number two, or kid number two, son number two. Because the name of son number two is not my son. Like that's literally the name of the son. That ain't my son. Because what had happened is someone had reconnected with Gomer on Facebook. (laughs) One third of divorces reference Facebook. One third. Someone found her on Facebook and kicked off an affair and had a baby. And so Hosea's like, hey, 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 I forgive you. I can work through this. We can do this. But Gomer says, no, I'm tired of you. You're boring and like this. And she leaves him and heads back into her life. And then chapter two, you get this story where Hosea's trying to explain like to his kids where mom went. Like what happened with her? And he says, well, she left because she wanted, well, it's flax and, and all this stuff that back then, wool and these fine things that back then, she wanted all this stuff and she didn't think she was getting it here, so she left. But here's the truth of what was actually happening. Because Hosea heard about what was happening to Gomer, that she wasn't being taken care of well. So chapter two, it says that Gomer or Hosea goes to the house where he knew Gomer was at. And he knocks on the door there and a guy answers the door. And he says, is this the house where Gomer, the daughter of Diblian lives? And the man says, yes. And Hosea says, I'm her husband. And so the guy thinks, oh, we're fighting. No, 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 no. I brought wool and I bought oil. And I brought new clothes because I know you're not taking care of her the way she should be taken care of. And so he gives her all this stuff, gives this man all this stuff to take care of his wife that had left him and was living in someone else's house. But the man never told Gomer, hey, it was your husband that actually gave you this stuff. It's your husband that was taking care of you and keeping you alive when you were doing this. But it gets worse and worse for Gomer, as life does for those And she ends up strung out on drugs. And she ends up owing someone a lot of money that was not a good person, so they start trafficking her for sex. But that's not enough. Eventually, that doesn't pay the bills, so they're going to sell her as a slave. And word comes to Hosea, your wife is being sold as a slave today. So he takes everything he has. He empties his bank account, takes all of his money, and runs down there where she's being auctioned off. And there she is, stripped naked bottom of life, rejected, being sold like a piece of meat. And the bidding's going. Then all of a sudden, Gomer hears a voice that she recognizes. That's my husband. 12 shekels, 13 shekels, 14 shekels. The man says, that's not enough. Okay, 15 shekels. Hey, I've been feeding her for months. 
Okay, 15 shekels and nine bushels of barley. You know how much nine bushels of barley is? It'd fill up the back of your pickup truck. Apparently she eats like a horse, so. Okay, fine, I, I know she's been to my house too. I'll feed her, no problem. The guy says, sold. And so he takes Gomer and she's worried. What does this mean now? Am I a slave? Am I a second class citizen? What does this mean now for a relationship? And Hosea 3, 3, he says this, I didn't buy you back as a slave. I bought you back as my wife. I bought you back that we would have each other now and no one else. It would just be us. And he reclothes her and puts a veil on her and protects her and cares for her. But he gives more grace. The whole story of Hosea is a story of God's love for his people. Yeah, you guys do this to me all the time, but I'm actually the one keeping you alive when you're sinning against me. It's me. I'll give you more grace. So what do we do? Draw near to him. God, I'm sorry. You didn't leave me. You didn't abandon me. I left you. I let my heart wander from you. I took something and put it on top of you. You repent. I draw near to you. And it says, he will draw near to you. You're as close to God as you want. You have the relationship with God that you want. Draw near to him and he will, it is a promise, draw near to you. When you realize, God, I saw you wrong. I thought I'd find life in these other things, but every good and every perfect gift is from you. I repent for how I've been seeing you. And he'll draw near to you. Repentance begins, repentance begins with God. The only way as a believer I sinned is by assassinating your character and I repent. Number two, you repent on how you see the enemy. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You gotta repent on who you're seeing as the wrong enemy. So often, we as believers fight the wrong battles. We think this person is the enemy, right? Because she. So we make our spouse the enemy. Or we make our neighbor the enemy. Or we make the Democrats the enemy. Or the Republicans the enemy. Or Peter Schiff is the enemy, whatever it is. That's not the biblical enemy of our soul. We have one enemy. But Matt, people sometimes, oh, the enemy will use people. Don't you know that? The enemy will 100% use people. Look at this text. This one is just, it's so good. It's Matthew chapter 16. Peter has just tried to correct Jesus. That's a general rule. Don't try to correct Jesus, right? So Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. Peter's like, no, you're not. Here's what happens. Verse 23, chapter 16, Matthew. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Who is Jesus talking to there? 
Peter or Satan? Those are your two choices. Who's he talking to? Peter or Satan? Yes. Right? Both. Yes. Why? Because there was a motivation and a force and a power that was using Peter. But Peter was part of it. Yeah. Fully. Satan uses people. But he's not the enemy. That person, Peter's not the enemy. We end up making the wrong things the enemy and using all our ammo on the wrong thing, getting all uptight and fighting and quarreling and bitter and resentment. And the enemy's just going, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Listen to what Ephesians 6.12 says. We wrestle, fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The battle for the believer is never against people. It's always against a kingdom that's called the kingdom of darkness. That's our fight. But Satan loves to get us all wrapped up in this little tiff and this little tiff because then we're no good for his kingdom. We're no good for God's kingdom because we're too busy fighting the wrong battles. He gets it too. He gets in you and goes, hey, that person can't treat you like that. Don't they know who you are? Yes, a sinner. Just like all of us. Yes, a sinner. 100%. You gotta be careful. We have to start identifying what the enemy does and his tactics and saying, that's not the mindset of the kingdom. That's the mindset of man. I'm not gonna have that kind of mind anymore. No, my fight is not with this person. I'm not gonna get sucked into that. I'm not going to go down that road. No. The same love that's pursued me, the same grace that has saved me, that same love and grace is for that person as well. And I'm going to pray for them and bless them and use the weapons that I have to heal this fracture. Oh, don't use your ammo on the wrong enemy. Repent. God, I've been seeing this person in a negative light. I've been just devouring them in my own head over and over and over. I can't even see anything good they've ever done. And that's the enemy. And I repent of that. I won't do that anymore. That's why I'm fighting and quarreling here. Forgive me. And thirdly, you have to repent for the way that you see sin. Like he just goes off. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We have to reverse the culture that we have today towards sin. Because when believers are heartbroken over sin, it becomes a shield so that you don't do it again. But here's what our culture loves to do. Our culture loves to switch it. And in a believer, when we begin to get to the point where we no no longer weep and we no longer lament over sin, there's a danger. Because we have this little thing in us. It's a barometer. It tells us how we're doing when it comes to sin. It's called the conscience. But the conscience can change. So 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says, you can have a defiled conscience. That means this, when you're engaged in something you know is wrong, 
You feel dirty. That's good. You feel uncomfortable. You feel like this isn't right. You feel kind of, uh, good. Your conscience is defiled. But if you keep defiling your conscience over and over and over again, here's what happens. Step number two. First Timothy 4, 2. You get a seared conscience. You ever burned yourself? Wherever you get burned, what happens to your feelings there? You're numb, right? You just don't feel anymore. So if you keep pounding on a defiled conscience, not listening, not allowing it to move you to a better spot, you, you get seared. All of a sudden, it doesn't hurt anymore. You're not uncomfortable anymore. It doesn't make you feel awkward. It doesn't make you feel like it's, you're just, nah, no big deal. Everybody does it. Not really, I'm not worried about it. It's seared. But it even gets worse because Hebrews 10.22 says it can move from there into an evil conscience. An evil conscience has reversed sin altogether. It's doing Isaiah 5.2, 5.20, excuse me, where you call good evil and evil good, right? No, this isn't wrong, this is good. This is the way God made me. I'm just acting authentically. This is the way we're supposed to be, right? This is the way things have always been. You become evil. The way that we move through that today is, I think it's here, where James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The way today that sin is changed in the mind of the believer is laughing at it. What is most of the entertainment today about? Sin, right? Adultery, fornication, whatever it is. Friends with benefits, right? Laugh, ha ha, that's funny. Addiction, whatever it is. Because the enemy knows this, if I can get you to laugh at that sin, it makes it less. What do kids joke about all the time? Sin, why? Why is there such an attraction to make laughter part of this recipe when it comes to sin? Because then it just seems like it's not very bad anymore. James says, you gotta reverse that. You gotta stop that. I think when it comes to sin, there are two ways you go. You can laugh at it now and you will weep for eternity. Or you can weep at it now and you can laugh for eternity. It's one or the other. James says, you repent the way that you're seeing sin. God, I don't know what's happened to my heart. That used to bother me. When I would go there, when I'd look at that, when I would choose those things, it would bother me. It's not even bothering me anymore. God, I repent. Help me to weep and lament and howl. And I'll tell you one of the most practical ways to get your conscience back set is to see the repercussions of sin. Go to the gospel rescue mission. Volunteer there. Go to Joe's place. Volunteer there. Get involved and celebrate recovery. Listen to the stories of how sin has had its corrosive effect on people and then all of a sudden it's not so funny because you're dealing with real people and kids that have been run over by this thing. That's not funny. I, I don't laugh at addiction. You know why? because I watched my dad die from kidney failure from his addiction. I buried my older brother because of his addiction. It's not funny to me. There's no humor to it. You're gonna laugh at it and weep for eternity, or you're gonna weep at it and laugh for eternity. You repent. The way out of this cycle, fighting, quarreling, ah, discontented soul, is God. 
Help me to see the way that you actually are. You give more grace. God, prevent me from seeing people as the enemy. There's a real dark kingdom. That's the enemy. And reshape my understanding of sin. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're sitting in a life of compromise. Heading down roads that you know they're not right. The good news is Jesus is your friend. Jesus says, I did not come for the well. I came for the sick. But in order to get healing, you have to admit, I'm sick. You gotta go to the hospital. And Jesus says, I came for that. It's called repentance. Maybe you've been playing the hokey pokey. Little dabble in, little dabble out, little in. I'm not sure where I'm at. You just say, Jesus, grab my heart again. I want to be all in for you. Dispel the lies of the enemy right now that are trying to tell me that if I follow you completely, I won't have life. I know that's a lie. That you are the source of life. And he gives more grace. That's why every Sunday we go to this table. Because I need more grace. That if I don't eat the antidote to sin, if I don't eat the antidote to quarreling and fighting, if I don't eat that weekly, I'm doomed. So Jesus, give me more grace. So Father, today, I thank you that the clear teaching of Scripture is you come after broken people. You leave the 99 to come after the one. You welcome the prodigal back with a party. That you give more grace. So maybe some in here are in their hearts weeping and lamenting their sin. I think that the psalmist says, tears come at night, but joy comes in the morning that we can eat and we can drink your grace and your transformation today. That we can repent and give you permission to change our hearts. So that's our hope. Our hope is in you. Our hope is your ability to make beautiful things from broken things. That's our hope. So meet us at the table this afternoon we ask. And I pray this in your name, amen.